Now, if you are Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, or BP, the year has not started well. Something extraordinary has been happening to the oil price. Mr. Gage, you are now putting another billion dollars of your own money uh, into green innovation. Well, the returns will come uh, partly through the benefits to society, and so... Uh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Today, we're here to announce America's Clean Power Plan, a plan two years in the making, and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. But I am convinced that no challenge poses a greater threat to our future. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Off the Charts podcast. I'm your host and executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at UChicago, Sam Ory. Now, as just about anyone can tell you at this point, the United States is in the midst of a major heat wave. The heat index has topped 100 degrees Fahrenheit for much of the country for the past week, with levels expected to top 115 in some areas of the central and eastern U.S. over the weekend. According to the federal government, for the first time on record, every square inch of all 50 states is forecast to see above average temperatures for the next three months. And in fact, the U.S. is not alone. Record temperatures are being recorded in India and Southeast Asia, and last week, Iraq and Kuwait recorded the highest temperature in the history of the Eastern Hemisphere. Bottom line, the world is well on its way to a record-shattering year for global temperature. Now, this is more than just a meteorological marvel. High temperatures have implications for everything from human health and labor productivity to crime and disease. And these effects may be set to worsen as climate change creates a worsening future outlook. In fact, future temperatures in some U.S. states could rival or surpass those of Mexico and Sudan today. What would that look like, and how should we prepare? With me to discuss is Amir Gina, postdoctoral scholar here at Epic. Amir, welcome. Thanks very much, Sam. It's good to be back. Good to have you back. So give us some sense, set the context here. Where does this current heat wave rank in terms of recent experience? Just how bad is it? Well, we know that June for the continental United States was the warmest June on record. In fact, every month has been above the 20th century average for that month for about the past 30 years. So we're into new territory. Remains to be seen how bad this July is going to stack up, but the predictions are that it will be a record-setting July as well. So we're definitely in new territory. Um, now you say new territory. What does what does the science tell us? What does climate science tell us about um, not only where we are today, but what we should expect going forward? Uh, you know, I hear oftentimes people say, "Well, there's some uh, question about is it more frequent or more intense, or is it frequent and intense?" How, what does the climate science tell us about the future of these kinds of, of heat waves and these kinds of meteorological events? So it's actually a more difficult question than you think. Part of it depends on how you define a heat wave. So if we compare it like we do now to just what our average temperature is, and it's just those very few rare days that are very hot. So that in a way it kind of differs by country. A heat wave is different than in Texas than it is in northern Minnesota, um, based on what people know. Um, those things are going to change through time. And so that's this relative definition that you get for meteorology. Um, we kind of feel that the research is pointing towards heat waves becoming more intense. So the, those points on the tail of that distribution are, are going to become more intense, more, more heat waves. But what we see from the economic side, the socioeconomic side or health side, looking at impacts is that this relative definition captures part of what a heat wave actually is. There's a lot of hard thresholds in the way that impacts are happening. So days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, for example, are cause 
uh, increased mortality, decreased fertility, lower labor productivity, a lot of different effects. And those thresholds might not shift as much. Um, so we're, we can expect those impacts to increase probably disproportionately as the heat waves increase too. And so you say heat waves are relative, you know, kind of expand on that a little bit. I mean, so the, the, is it that the, these kinds of events are more frequent, um, on average across the globe? Is it that these kinds of events are more likely to, to occur uh, in certain parts of the world? What's the, what's the outlook? Well, so the increasing temperatures, we're definitely going to see more heat waves compared to today's temperature. We're going to see more records being broken all the time. Um, but Something that matters quite a lot is that, you know, the the days that we would think are really hot if we're sitting in Texas are much different than the days we're going to think are really hot sitting in the northern United States or in Canada or somewhere. Um, so, and they can have, surprisingly, they can have the same impacts, um, even though the temperatures might be lower in the north, just because we're less used to them. Um, so, the defining a heat wave in one single way becomes a little bit difficult because it, it matters what impact we're looking at, the way it's going to affect people, whether we can adapt to it, um, and what people are used to. So, and that, that uh, question of, of shocks really matters, right? It, it seems like uh, the, the, the most devastating consequences of above average temperatures occur when people are not prepared for it because of historical experience or for whatever other exactly. reason. And so, um, you know, I think it, a good example is the heat wave in Europe a few years ago, um, significant potential death toll, some estimates as high as 70,000. Um, and so uh, what was the driver behind that? It was, was it because, uh, people weren't ready for it or the technology, the kind of adaptation air conditioning wasn't in place? What was the combination of factors? Well, if you've ever been to Paris in the summer, you don't really find air conditioning in many homes and that's, that's part of it. So people weren't really adapted as well as they would be in some other parts of the world. They were more used to high heat events. So there was, a. um, a good analogy for what happened there um, happened in the U.S. in the Chicago heat wave of 95, where there was pretty high mortality, too. And from that, not only Chicago, but a lot of other cities around the U.S. realized they needed to change the way they thought about heat waves and heat events. And so they started instituting cooling centers and and making sure they identified who the vulnerable populations were, typically older people, people who might have cardiovascular stress um, already, because trying to cool your body when you've got already got a weak heart or some other health problem becomes very difficult. But in France at the time, in, in that European heat wave, they really weren't as aware of that or expected to see those types of events as much. And so the, the, familiar, the familiarity with it, or the lack of familiarity in their case, was really what caused that high excess mortality. And so uh, when you think of the conventional ways uh, or conventional means of adapting to rising temperatures, air conditioning is the first thing that comes to mind. We've had over the last uh, over the last century a huge increase, obviously, in the level of air conditioning penetration in the U.S. It's as high as 80 percent, I think now. Um, And and so from from that perspective, we're pretty well adapted. But, you know, in places potentially like like France, as you mentioned, maybe uh, have not made those those shifts, but they but they may need to going forward, it sounds like. So you have a piece up on Forbes today talking about the climate outlook for various parts of the U.S. And I think you make some jarring comparisons to uh, to give a sense of how the climate will change in different parts of the U.S. Uh, going forward. And you say that if we stick to a business-as-usual trajectory, that in some of our lifetimes, uh, and certainly that of our children, people in all of Chicago, uh, or, or in Chicago and all of Illinois, will experience summers as hot as India today. Uh, you compare Washington, D.C. Uh, being even hotter than India 
the hottest states like Texas, Mississippi, and Florida will be hotter than Sudan uh, and uh, in the future. And Maine, the coldest state in the continental U.S., will still be the coldest from, on, a, on a relative basis, but in the future will be hotter than Mexico. That 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 one really jumped out to me yeah. as uh, as a, as pretty uh, as pretty jarring. So. Uh, what does that look like? What, how, you know, what's the, I think when people read that, that's, that's, it's almost hard to get your head around. Uh, what does that mean for, you know, the agriculture in these places? The, the, the impacts are potentially huge and there's impacts across all different kinds of really important sectors in the economy. And um, one thing to just to start off with, so we have this business as usual type of idea. So predicting the future is hard. Uh, we have to know, we have to make some assumptions about what society is going to do, how they're going to respond. So the way that climate scientists typically do this is they have um, what you might hear in the jargon world of climate change is representative causal pathways. So the hot one, the the one where we, we don't mitigate climate change so much and we stick to the, the business as usual type of investments and global cooperation that we had in the early 2000s. And um, that's what we're kind of predicting here. Um, we are with if we put all our Paris commitments into action, we're definitely going to shift off that. But importantly, we haven't done that yet, and we're still along that type, business as usual type of trajectory. So that's in this in this piece on Forbes. That's the world we're thinking about. The world where we do very little. That's the world we might be facing. But yeah, I mean, essentially, what it looks like is if you imagine picking up the United States and moving it south by twenty, thirty degrees of latitude and dropping it somewhere else, you're effectively moving the parts of the United States to look more like places in the tropics or in desert climates. Um, the impacts are, as you point out, are going to be really large. It's difficult to know exactly how people will adapt. But if we kept the same economic and social structures we have today, we've done research on this and we know that the, um, the effects are as high as damaging um, a few, if not up to about 10% of GDP. So it's there's large numbers. Um, and in particular, because not all places are going to warm the same. So you see, you know, Texas heating up almost hotter than than Saudi Arabia or as hot as Sudan is today. Um, they will get hit much harder than the northern states. And so you see the impacts being larger in hotter places already. Um, and they're just going to get bigger as time goes through. So this, you know, if we lose... 5% of the economy, that's not going to be equally spread among everybody. So we're going to see this distributional effect as places get hit differently in different parts of the country too. And the, the way that you, uh, I think, flesh this out in the piece is to talk about mortality. Obviously, there's I, I would, there's wrapped up in that GDP, there's other effects, uh, agriculture, labor productivity uh, in particular, which we should talk about. But you talk about mortality, 21 deaths out of every 100,000 by the end of the century uh, could be heat-related. And I was really struck by the comparison point there, which is that's twice as high as the total number of deaths on America's roadways in 2014. Yes. So when people hear 21 out of 100,000, they might think, "Well, that how high is that?" But if you can, if you think about it in, the, in that in that uh, comparison in that framework, that it says it's twice as high as the total number of deaths on U.S. roadways in 2014, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, and thankfully road deaths have been coming down. So 20 years ago, they were probably comparable, but it's. Road debts is this thing which is very pressing. It's an immediate impact that we think of in our minds. Um, everyone has seen a car accident, knows just how scary those things are. Um, 
And there's policies, there's so many policies in place to try and make sure that our roads are as safe as possible. It gets a little bit more difficult when you start thinking about heat-related mortality. So we know about people dying from heat stroke directly, but there's also all this other indirect mortality. Like I mentioned, in France, there was a lot of older people who, you know, had decades left to live potentially, but might have had some some heart stress that was exacerbated by heat. And we don't often count those. So part of our research here has been trying to cap to capture what the entirety of mortality is. Um, but still, it's this very abstract thing that people don't really think about. So making these comparisons, saying, you know, here's this thing, road debts, where we have, everybody knows the policies about road debts. We have, everyone has to get their licenses, wear seatbelts. We've got all kinds of road safety things. Um, and yet we don't think so much about this other pretty grave threat that's potentially looming and affects not only health, but a lot of other sectors too. Now, as grave as it is, uh, you point out that in some sense, the U.S. is lucky uh, they, because at least in the, in the context of mortality, heat's worst effects are tempered by air conditioning, mm-hmm. which we've talked about. And so the penetration rate in the U.S. for air conditioning is as high as 80%. But as you point out, in other parts of the world, that's not the case. Um, 85% of households in the U.S. have air conditioning. Only 2% have it in India right now. Yeah. Um, what is the, how, what does that tell us about how we should think about adaptation? So clearly if the temperature in Maine is going to be as high as Mexico today, I would think the future temperature outlook in India is potentially catastrophic. Yes. And the need to, to, to rapidly increase the deployment of air conditioning in India, I would think could, is a, is a key parameter of, of adaptation. How should we think about the cost of that? How fast does it have to happen? And, and, and how is it going to happen in a country that is, you know, that has 300 million people that don't have access to electricity today and, you know, has a per capita GDP uh, that's probably, you know, it is certainly a fraction of, of yeah. the U.S.? It's a, it's a difficult question. So there's, there's two things to consider here. There's, there's the access to air conditioning and then the costs of actually running air conditioning. So even in the U.S. where we've got a lot of households which are able to, to ameliorate the worst effects of heat, businesses as well, and labor productivity effects, it's not just um, health that is affected by air conditioning, which is a really, it's, it's one of the only surefire guaranteed adaptations that are going to help us with, uh, with increasing temperatures. Um, the energy costs from a single hot day in the United States are enormous because everybody turns on their their air conditioning. So there's this. I mean, it required the the build out of air conditioning in the U.S. required essentially a a wholesale uh, uh, redo and a, and in, in some cases a new build of the electricity distribution system exactly. in the U.S. Um, Transformers had to be upsized to handle AC load, etc. And so. So we think about that first part of the the issue, which is that even in places that have air conditioning, the the costs of increased increased use of air conditioning are going to be pretty high. Now that's just in terms of the household or business expenditure on their air conditioning on their elect- electricity bills, because of the way the energy system is structured in most countries at the moment with a heavy reliance on fossil fuels. The thing that we're trying that is the problem that is that we are trying to fight with air conditioning. And we're actually exacerbating it by releasing more fossil fuels by running our air conditioners. So there's that part of the problem that we have to think about for a lot of rich countries. Um, It's enormously costly to run the air conditioners that they have. As you point out for India, it's per capita incomes are are very low and and energy access is very low in parts of the country. In fact, so India has 300 million people at electricity. Sub-Saharan Africa in total has about 600 million. Um, So in total, there's over a billion people in the world without access to electricity. Most of those in some of the hottest places on earth. 
the benefits that they would likely get from having access to cooled to cooled business places, workplaces, homes is far greater than you would imagine in the US because they are much more exposed and yet they're the ones with the least ability to adopt that. And so we're stuck in this strange situation where you mentioned crops earlier. It's it's difficult to know what the, the optimal ad- adaptation strategy is for crops. A lot of people are working on it, heat heat tolerant varieties or moving crops to different places. Um, and a lot of people in businesses, private sector, are, are trying to do research on that as well as in, in universities. For a lot of the health effects, we know what the adaptation is. It's right there. It's air conditioning. It's sitting on our plate. But if but we stick to that, right? to it is, is exactly. the problem. So if we stick to mortality for a second, though, the... I mean, I would think that just to start to get some sense of the costs of adaptation in some of these places, uh, is, it's got to be staggering. Do we have a sense of, for, 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 for air conditioning, and, you know, as a, as a means for adapting to future higher temperatures in India and sub-Saharan Africa, what is the scale of that? It's got to be a trillion dollars. Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to guess what the scale would be, but if you imagine a single air conditioning unit being on the order of a couple of hundred dollars... Um, which in some cases is higher than a lot of families or it's comparable with families annual incomes in some parts of the world. Um, yeah, if you were to air condition those 300 million households or if you were to try and get some electricity uh, air conditioning penetration in India. Well, I mean, the key is faster than it would happen otherwise, right? Yes, I mean, it's, yeah. if it's it, going to happen, it's going to happen anyway. But the question is, if we need to pull it forward by 50 years in order to avoid um, the, you know, I would think the the uh, severe health and mortality effects. Yeah. Um, I would think the costs must be staggering. The co- costs would be enormous, and it mean it would mean more than just relying on the private demand for air conditioners. Right. Um, so it would mean subsidies. It would mean, as you say, like in the U.S., rejuvenating grids in a lot of places. So already in India, the even in places like. Gurgaon, south, south of Delhi, one of the, the business, big business centers of India, they don't get power throughout the whole of the day. Um, so the transformation to, their, to the grid, to subsidies required to, to get everybody access to air conditioning, it, they'll just be enormous. Uh, is, the, is the cost for that kind of adaptation, do we have a sense of whether it's greater than or less than the costs for mitigation? If we were to instead say, let's not rely on, um, you know, this need down the road or to accelerate the penetration of things like air conditioning to adapt, but rather let's make investments today to cut down on emissions and avoid being on the business as usual scenario. Is that the smarter bet? It's typically expected to be the smarter bet. Uh, the, the dollar for dollar, um, or rather the, the direct comparison of every single adaptive action that needs to be taken, that accounting hasn't really been done because it's difficult to know what the adaptation strategies are. But the expectation for most economists is that it's um, at least twice the size to do to invest in adaptation as it would be to mitigate. But the problem is there's been so many barriers to political and otherwise barriers to mitigation of climate change that without this big concerted effort that we're starting to see, thankfully, um, adaptation and mitigation form this mix together. But definitely the, the expectation is from almost every economist that the, um, 
mitigation is a fraction of the bill for adaptation. Now we've we've kind of uh, we've kind of flirted around with this a little bit over the course of the discussion, but mortality is is uh, is a central uh, uh, you know consequence of this future, and it's one that you talk about uh, I think in in a really interesting and detailed way in this piece on Forbes.com. But there's other consequences uh, of, of this future uh, increase in temperatures. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, how, does the, how does higher temperature, uh, you know, the impacts of that seep its way into labor productivity? I mean, agriculture seems obvious, but what about crime, disease, labor productivity, some of these other things? So the things that are likely to be the biggest costs out of the, out of the, the impacted areas that we know a lot about so far um, health is the big one, as you say. Labor productivity is probably big, and there's less research on that. We're trying to we're doing a big push at the moment to try and understand that. Um, so our group here and a lot of other groups, um, I realizing the fact that labor productivity is going to be a big impact of climate change, and the way that that's impacted is people um, in two ways really. So people work less efficiently if they're exposed to higher temperatures. You know, they make more, and you probably know this yourself on a hot day, you get kind of lazy, you, your the quality of your work might start to decrease. So that happens in a lot of places. I don't concede that you don't concede. Okay. Your work, you are, you are uniquely <laughs> adapted. Well, we're lucky here. We have air conditioning, so we're fine. Our productivity stays high. Um, but also the, there's the, there's the effect of people leaving work early. So right kind of trading off on the other margin um, and both of those effects are at play and the we're seeing just looking at that margin of people leaving work early in the United States for a day with a maximum temperature above 90 degrees Fahrenheit um, that people might be taking in some sectors if they're working in agriculture or manufacturing might be taking as much as an hour off off their work day just wow. for that day compared to what they would have worked at a day of average temperature but if you aggregate that across you know an entire industry or across the entire economy it's the costs are substantial yes and that's yeah that's one person for one day and one year that's above that average and there's a lot more than that uh, that will be affected um so labor productivity is likely to be huge as we we talked about before the energy demand the costs from increased uh, energy usage um depending on air conditioner penetration are huge it's probably one of the biggest impact the biggest cost impacts of climate change that we can anticipate now um the crime connection is very interesting it's, it's not totally foreign to people in Chicago, I would think. I mean, we've seen, and we do see each year in the summer as things get hotter. And I think uh, people often assume that that's because uh, people are outside more. But there's more research uh, that I've seen recently that shows that it's not just a function of, uh, you know, more interactions being outside, but that people have, because of the heat, shorter tempers yeah. and are more are more prone to to, you know, to get into disagreements that yeah. result in, in violence. It's likely to be both of those things at play. So there's this idea that you come in contact with more people, you're outside, more of that kind of stuff. But it's been known for a long time by a lot of armies and, and police forces that hot days are, people might act a little bit crazier than they otherwise would. And so they've invested in um, research with their own forces to try and find out what the response of their own officers are in hot temperatures. And they see that people are likely, more likely to take um, extreme defensive action. So an officer is more likely to pull their gun if they feel threatened or to feel more threats. And people tend to be more regret, uh, aggressive. And there's certain reasons related to serotonin production or other things in your brain that might be driving that. But it's a little bit of both. Um, and so even though there has been this decline of, of crime, thankfully across most of the United States and um, a large parts of the 
the developed world. Um, it's definitely something that we've identified now in the in the data as being exacerbated by by hot days in a really stark way. Um, there's also a lot of research trying to look at what happens with larger scale conflicts in places that don't have the the fortune of the political stability that we might have here. Um, and you see similar effects of, of temperature increasing, armed conflicts and other things. So globally, there it's a definite issue of concern, which I know the Department of Defense in this country is worried about it as a, uh, as a security issue um, going forward as well. Do we have a sense of how, in the aggregate, these, if you roll up all these effects under... Uh, just increased temperature, how these compare to the effects of other things that, that we associate with uh, climate change in the future, more more uh, frequently intense hurricanes and those kinds of things. How does how do those stack up against, you know, coastal flooding and the things that we think of when you see uh, Superstorm Sandy or something like that? How do the costs of those things globally stack up against the costs of, of this? So we've done this analysis for the United States in as much as we were able to identify using data, using em- empirical evidence, what those impacts might be. Um, and on a national sense, coastal coastal flooding, coastal property damage was a substantial cost. So in order of, of, co- of uh, the magnitude of costs, health um, overpowered all the others, but then energy use, labor productivity, and, and then down to, to coastal flooding was, was next on that list. Um, it matters a huge amount for Florida. It's the biggest cost of climate change for for Florida, for some other coastal states. But as you spread it out over the country, it, it effectively gets diluted a little bit. But this comes back to this idea of, um, first of all, the importance of trying to do research that directly compares those things. So we know how to make policies that are place-based, based on what people are going to experience and not just a one-size-fits-all policy of whatever adaptation or defensive investments we make. But it also brings back this idea of, of climate change as, as an important distributional issue. Um, it's something that we've seen in our research uh, that that something that would increase uh, inequality across the country. The places that are already relatively poor in the South get hit harder, and so they're, they're losing larger parts of their economy than in the north where you might even see some beneficial effects because you know their agriculture increases in productivity or there's fewer cold days which also damage health um so it brings in this idea that there are distributional effects coastal places will be disproportionately damaged um and it kind of means this transfer of value away from places that are already vulnerable and might not all not might not have the the strongest economies at the moment, even within the United States, which we would think is a country where, um, you know, we've largely adapted ourselves away from from the worst impacts of, of temperature. And so the research that you mentioned that you've done before uh, in the United States was part of the Risky Business Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's out and available for people to look at now uh, in the American Climate Perspectives. And the work to do this globally is a project that you're part of now as well, uh, yes. the Climate Impact Lab. And, uh, you know, what sort of headline, what can you tell us about the Climate Impact Lab and uh, where should people go to, to learn more about the work? So we have a website, climateimpactlab.org, um, where you can go and see what we're doing. As you point out, the American Climate Perspectives is really forming the, the, the central basis for the how we're approaching um, this issue of climate impacts globally 
I think what we've done, which is unique with that, is to really take data to the question. We want to use as much evidence that exists at the moment, make as few assumptions as possible, and say, what does the data say about what impacts are currently? And we're, as you say, pushing this out to the whole world. That results in a whole host of other challenges because the US has data to, to look at impacts. Um, and then even if you just want to know what's happening with the with the climate in the United States, we have weather stations which have been going for, for decades. You just don't have that in other parts of the world. So we come back again thinking about distribution issues. Some of the places that are going to warm the most, that have the worst economies, um, are also places with the least data where we know the least about them. And so we're trying to do a lot of things to understand that, but it's, it's a big challenge um, and hopefully something that we're going to try and address over the next two or three years. It's important work. Uh, well, thanks, Amir. That's all the time we have for now. Uh, so please make sure to subscribe to the Off the Charts podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including on our website at epic.uchicago.edu. For now, thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Sam Ori. Mm-hmm.